earlier this year, four major international human rights organisations condemned Israel for being an apartheid society. And we talk all the time about Israel being an apartheid state. So I want to start with looking at what that actually might mean. I'm also going to look at how South African apartheid was defeated and what lessons can be drawn for the struggle for Palestinian liberation. So apartheid was introduced in 1948 in South Africa. It was a system of state-run racial segregation that dictated where people could live, what jobs they could do, who, could, who they could marry, all based on racial classification. And this built on colonial era racism in South Africa. There were four official races, white, black, coloured and Indian. To separate the races, over three million black South Africans were evicted from their homes and most were moved into so-called tribal homelands or Bantustans. The ten Bantustans were intended to be forerunners of future impoverished states with their own black governments, separated from South Africa, but absolutely dependent on the South African state. The apartheid regime argued that it was implementing separate development for these different races. Most of the remaining black population was moved into so-called townships to provide cheap labour for neighbouring cities. Non-whites were not allowed to live outside their townships or bantustans without an official pass. Apartheid gave non-capitalist whites access to higher status jobs with trade union rights and the right to vote and banned black, uh, blacks from doing those jobs. This population of non-capitalist whites was fundamental to the ability of the ruling class to maintain control over this racialised workforce. And from the start, apartheid was challenged by mass protests, strikes, and these were often crushed with the utmost brutality, including killing protesters, torture and so on. In the 1950s, apartheid was largely a non-issue in the politics of the rich Western states. That changed dramatically on the 21st of March 1960. At a protest against the system of passbooks in Sharpville, a black township, the police opened fire, killing 69 people and wounding 178. This event galvanised anti-apartheid and anti-racist movements around the world. Uh, it led to artistic and sporting boycotts, uh, including the militant movement against the Springboks Tour of Australia in 1971, and also the first sanctions against South Africa, not that they were very effective. Inside South Africa, the African National Congress, the biggest anti-apartheid organisation, launched strike action against the regime. When government repression crushed this, the ANC turned to armed struggle, setting up Umkonte Wesweze, called MK, to sabotage state structures like power lines, power stations, railway lines and military bases. MK was led by Nelson Mandela. State repression smashed this upsurge of struggle and smashed, M uh, smashed MK, that version of MK. Mandela was arrested uh, with the assistance of the CIA and jailed for life and was be still being called a terrorist in the 1980s by such luminaries as Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Now, in the end, apartheid was defeated. The regime's acceptance of defeat came clear on the 11th of February 1990 when Mandela was released from jail. This, I have to tell you, you cannot imagine the excitement around this event. He was the most celebrated political prisoner in history. Hundreds of millions of people around the world watched on TV live as he walked from jail and there was a carnival atmosphere in South Africa itself. 
The focus on Mandela and the massive global campaign to free him tends to obscure the main reason for the regime's capitulation, the militancy, organisation and politicisation of the black working class. So the first turning point came in the 1970s when new independent unions were organised. Unlike previous uh, unionisation movements, the regime was never able to smash these. One reason is that they were independent of the rival nationalist movements who wanted the workers' movement subordinated to what to the anti-apartheid struggle they led. The success of these unions also reflected the growth of the black industrial working class. By 1980, there were over a million black workers in manufacturing alone and over three quarters of a million in mining. Like today in Australia, what is it, about 15,000 in mining? You think about the scale of the mining industry and the black working class in mining. There were two massive strike waves. The first started in the late 1970s and the biggest of all was in the mid-1980s. The organisation of a powerful miners' union was a turning point. It managed to wage legal strikes and win real uh, gains. Another was the success of a general strike in Transvaal, organised by the unions and community organisations in November 1984. Shortly after, one business leader complained that independent unions were threatening, quote, the private enterprise system and, quote, the right to manage. There were other important political factors in the rise of the workers' movement, the independent workers' movement. Union leaders who visited uh, uh, independent Zimbabwe after the defeat of the colonial regime were shocked by the Mugabe regime's ruthless suppression of the workers' movement. This strengthened the argument that workers' organisations should be independent of nationalist parties. The movement was also radicalised by a series of township uprisings. In Soweto in 1976, this was a massive township on the outskirts of Johannesburg. I think about a million people lived there. School kids were massacred when they protested against being forced to study in the Afrikaans language. The movement against apartheid then exploded across South Africa and again around the world. The mid-1980s was another wave of township revolts, which again helped drive workers' militancy. The regime responded with absolutely brutal repression, instituted a state of emergency, and it crushed that uh, township movement. At the same time, they shifted to offering important concessions to potential black allies, like the black governments and bureaucracies in the Bantustans and black business people. But behind the scenes, many of the ruling class had realised that apartheid was on borrowed time and they set about trying to find a way out. The African National Congress and the South African Communist Party facilitated this by stressing their commitment to defer any challenge to South African capitalism to the never-never, not the short term. After painful secret negotiations, Mandela was finally released. But even then, the regime tried to roll back this victory. The black regime running the KwaZulu-Bantistan set up its own political party, the so-called Inkatha Freedom Party, which of course had nothing to do with freedom, and waged all-out war, like physical war against the ANC and the townships of Natal in the years before 1990. After another massacre of 45 ANC supporters in June 1992, the ANC walked out of negotiations and organised a mass general strike. Four million workers came out. Four million, telling the regime there could be no solution without the full involvement of the ANC. 
There were other ruthless attempts by the right to shift the balance of forces against the ANC and the black working class. In April 1993, a fascist assassinated the popular leader of the Communist Party, Chris Harney. Again, two spontaneous general strikes and massive demonstrations showed the regime that the situation was, was on the brink of getting out of control. They were forced to turn to Mandela, who had no status at this stage, to calm things down. Then in April 1994, South Africa had its first elections where every citizen could vote. The ANC won in a landslide, Mandela became president, formal apartheid was dead. This was a historic victory of working class organisation and militancy allied to the rebellion of the black townships. Now, I think the comparisons between Israel and apartheid are pretty clear in terms of racialisation of the indigenous population, uh, extreme discrimination, the use of corrupt proxies to rule and crush rebellion in occupied territories, the settler population guaranteeing the state's ability to crush rebellion and also the support of imperialist powers for the racist state. We should never forget too that Israel was a constant supporter of the apartheid regime, including uh, giving it the technology to develop its own nuclear weapons. But the most striking difference is the most important. Black South African workers were at the heart of the South African economy. This was a deliberate decision of the regime. There was a major factor within the National Party in the 1950s that wanted a Zionist-style solution, expulsion of all blacks to homelands. That was overruled because apartheid was not just some um, ideological cult, but a strategy for managing capitalism in the specific circumstances of South Africa, with its heavy reliance on mining profits and then its move to industrialise. This in turn gave black powers the potential I talked about to challenge the regime. Palestinians today are a modest part of the Zionist economy. Their power to disrupt is limited. It's very real, but it's limited. Uh, in the past, uh, when Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza after the 67 war, the plan was to somewhat replicate significant aspects of the apartheid system. Moshe Dayan, who was the head of the armed forces, talked about economic integration, not political integration. In other words, um, the Gaza and occupied territories would be ruled by compliant Palestinian security forces, mimicking those put in charge of the Bantustans. Israel would exploit hundreds of thousands of Palestinian workers on low pay, but not allow them to live in Israel. Defeat of the First Intifada in 1993 led the Zionists to exclude more Palestinians and replace them by importing more Jewish immigrants. Today, the Zionist regime clearly intends to drive as many Palestinians as possible out of historic Palestine to reduce even further their ability to challenge the Zionist state. Before the Hamas attack in October, there were just 110 Palestinians with permits to travel to work in Israel. They rarely work alongside Jewish workers. They're central to the construction industry and important in agriculture, but have little involvement in other parts of the economy. Unlike black South Africans under apartheid, they've been unable to win the right to organise their own unions in Israel, nor to organise successfully in defiance of the ban on union organising. On the other hand, the Palestinian resistance has inspired the Arab masses in, in the region in their struggles against their own dictatorships. That's why today we say, and our tendency has always said, the liberation of Palestine runs through the streets of Cairo.
Egypt's population is 110 million. There's over 30 million workers in Egypt, dwarfing the workforce uh, in Israel and Arab states in the region. Cairo is the largest and most industrialised city in the Middle East. The question is also political. In an important article written in 2012, during the Arab Spring, uh, Reem Abu El Fadl wrote that since the 1940s, the liberation of Palestine was regarded as an Egyptian issue in Egypt. The Intifada in the year 2000 inspired and mobilised students in, Israel, in, in Egypt. The regime would not allow, the Mubarak regime would not allow domestic criticism. So most mass protests in Egypt against Israeli brutality served as a proxy for domestic discontent over poverty, inequality, police brutality, privatisation and corruption. They began to link their anger over domestic issues to the regime's support for Israel. So they demanded an end to gas sales to Israel. Images of Mubarak appeared with Israeli symbols and banners in Hebrew asking him to leave, saying he would be welcome in Tel Aviv. The confidence these protests gave them led the protesters to chant anti-regime slogans. We haven't forgotten you, Palestine. We are also occupied. The networks created by this movement were central to organising the strikes and protests that led to the uprising of 2011, the Arab Spring in Egypt, that brought down the dictator and opened up the possibility of real liberation for both Egyptians and Palestinians. After the defeat of the regime in Tunisia in early 2011, mass protests erupted against the Egyptian regime. These centred on Cairo's Tahrir Square and brought literally millions of ordinary and poor Egyptians into the struggle. These in turn sparked a massive wave of strikes as the anger of millions of workers exploded. Even though the armed forces quickly removed Mubarak, the strike wave grew. Hundreds of new unions were formed, as well as demanding wage rises, job security, union rights. Workers also demanded that ruling party officials be sacked from management roles. And obviously huge numbers of workers were involved in those mass demonstrations. Support for Palestinian liberation was at the centre of those protests in 2011. A week after Mubarak was overthrown, in February 2011, a demonstration of three million Egyptians abounded in pro-Palestinian chants. To Jerusalem we're going, martyrs in our millions. Every Friday, mass demonstrations would set out from Tahrir Square to the Israeli embassy chanting, Armas, Armas, to Gaza, send us. And there were many other actions that were focused on uh, Palestine. When the regime built a wall to protect the Israeli embassy, protesters smashed it down, occupied the embassy and seized documents. By the middle of 2011, the regime had stabilised itself and started going on the offensive. Parliamentary elections were used by the official opposition to demobilise, while increased police brutality forced revolutionaries onto the defensive. And of course, the official opposition was opposed to the, um, act, you know, the, the, the anti-Israeli uh, dimension to the activism. The lack of a revolutionary party with roots in the workplaces and a clear, a clear on the need to confront the betrayal of the Muslim Brotherhood and other traditional opposition parties gave the op generals the opportunities to finally crush the revolt. But the high point of the revolution showed us what was possible. 
So we don't know in future how the class struggle in the Arab world will unfold in the months and years ahead, nor do we know in detail how it will connect with the Palestinian struggle. But we do know that a genuine workers' uprising in Egypt will happen in the future. It has the potential and it needs to take control of production and control over how society is run. And if and when it does that, it will inspire others around the world and in the region. We saw the beginnings of such a revolution in parts of the Middle East in 2011. There's a great description of how that unfolded in um, Anne Alexander's book, uh, talking about Algeria. In both South Africa and the Middle East, uh, a successful revolution means challenging the nationalist politics that have so far derailed workers' revolts. And finally, we also know that what we do here matters. The solidarity shown by protesters around the world has been important to Palestinians today in their struggle, as it was to Vietnamese in their struggle against American imperialism in the 60s and 70s. How socialists here and in the West build that solidarity for Palestine today can also in the future influence how Palestinians and Egyptians see the future of their own struggle as a struggle that needs to smash capitalism at home as part of challenging the entire global imperialist system of which Zionism is an especially brutal and nasty part.